KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Matt Leon. So the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump is in the books. He was not convicted, but 57 senators, including seven Republicans, thought he should be. So what did we learn? How will this second impeachment be framed in history, and where do we go from here? For this discussion, caught up with Dr. William Rosenberg. He is a professor of political science at Drexel University. Give a listen. So to start, just kind of give me your thoughts on what we saw from the House managers, the the case for impeachment, the, how strong did you think it was? Well, I think what we have to do is uh, recognize that we have very few comparisons, although we do have a recent one with the impeachment uh, managers and the impeachment trial in 2019. I think what happened was that there was a, a consideration being made about, number one, should there be an impeachment? And number two, if there was going to be an impeachment by the Democrats, what should the allegations be? In other words, what should the charges be? I think they made a decision to say, we're just going to make one charge of impeachment, that of inciting the insurrection on the Capitol. And cleverly, they embedded a lot of other things in it, including some of the actions that Donald Trump had done in the past to sort of provide supplemental information to the impeachment charge. I think what happened was that that the House decided that they didn't want to get bogged down in having to concede or debate about other issues that may be even more contentious. And since all of the world saw what happened on January 6th, they thought it was probably the cleanest approach to try and bring out an impeachment conviction. I think that the members of the House that were on the uh, impeachment managers group led by Jamie Raskin did a very good job. I mean, they presented their case well. Uh, They presented what they wanted to have the public see and what the Senate was going to see. But we have to understand that they were fighting an uphill battle from Jump Street. Uh, The Senate was overwhelmingly going to have the probability of stopping any conviction because of the rules impeachment required a two-thirds vote. You had to have 67 votes. And even though the Republicans had 50 votes and the Democrats essentially had 50 votes, there was a very uh, unattainable climb to get the Democrats to bring along 17 other members. So they had sort of a process where they had to decide how they were going to approach it and who their audience was. I think the House managers recognized that one audience certainly was the senators who were going to vote, but the other audience was the American people and the rest of the world to be able to see what transpired and to be able to make a judgment of their own about about the events that unfolded on January 6th and beforehand. How much of this exercise was trying to convict and prevent Donald Trump from office and how much of putting this all together for the historical record, do you think? Well, I think it was both. I think that the way that I look at the whole impeachment process, it was a whole series of different activities that had different motivations for different people. 
I mean, if you think about it, I, I, I would argue that for Senate Republicans, they were acting both out of a sense of indignation that how dare these Democrats bring up these charges, that uh, the president was not guilty of anything, and that he should not even be subjected to it. And then you had other senators who wanted to sort of hide behind the issue about things like freedom of speech or the issue about could a non-sitting president be impeached. That was sort of a second sort of camp that was out there. I think there was a third camp which was operating under the basis of fear. And I think the fear was sort of very evident when you take a look at someone like Mitch McConnell, who served to delay the start of the trial because he felt that Trump needed some time to get ready, and he also wanted to delay what was going to occur. So by Pelosi not acting on day one to make the uh, impeachment process move forward, she delayed a bit when the impeachment process would actually unfold. But McConnell had a strategic role in saying to the Democrats, let's hold off on the trial. We can have the impeachment. Let's hold off on the trial until after the election. Okay, And that was done probably for two reasons. One, to potentially stop another insurrection from happening around the inauguration, which doesn't really get talked about. But secondly, It also threw a wrench into the whole process by then allowing the Republicans, the Trump defenders, to argue that since he's not president anymore, he can't be impeached. So there was an oddity there. There was also an oddity in terms of Mitch McConnell and how he was operating, I believe, out of fear, and that he wants to retain leadership of the Republican Party, particularly in the Senate. And if he appeared to be too out in front of moving for impeachment, he would potentially lose that role. And Mitch McConnell loves to be in charge. He wants to be able to control things. So what happened was he was operating under fear for his own political career as well. And finally, I'm going to suggest that there are other members of the Senate who were also operating under fear because they were afraid that they were going to be primaried if they ran for re-election by the Trump supporters. And similarly, the people who had presidential aspirations, they were a little bit in a conflicted mode because unless the president got impeached and barred from running for office, he could run again in 2024 and they would not be able to stop him okay, from running. And people like Marco Rubio, people like Ted Cruz, this was obviously on their minds. And it was a conflicted situation because they also wanted to lure the Trump supporters to continue to be in their own base if they ran for the White House. You mentioned earlier this would be an uphill climb, and I think anyone who's paying attention understands that going in. So they failed to convict, but 57 senators did vote guilty, including seven Republicans. And when you... I think take a step back from the idea that they didn't convict, which is obviously the bottom line, but 5743, there are very few things in our society we get that big of a breakdown on. 
that's pretty extraordinary to to get seven Republicans and get to 57 in its own rights, isn't it? Well, I think what we have to recognize is that the Constitution, as it was written, placed two sort of numerical numbers in play. One was majority rule. And the second one was a supermajority rule. And the majority rule said that you have to have 50% plus one vote to pass a piece of legislation, for example. But if the president vetoes the legislation, you have to have two-thirds in the House and two-thirds in the Senate to override his veto. That's the supermajority. They also put the supermajority, though, in place with regards to impeachment. Rather than just 50 votes to be able to convict the president, you had to have 67 votes. So they did that so that the country would not willy-nilly start impeaching presidents and remove them from office. They wanted to have it as a very high bar. So by having it that high, it made it really difficult to attain. There's also another number that I would suggest that listeners consider, and that's the 60-person or 60-senator rule, which is tied to the filibuster, where if the essentially the minority party doesn't want a piece of legislation passed, they can filibuster it. And unless the other party gets 60 votes, the law will not pass. And that's what we basically faced, if you recall, with Obamacare and how at the last minute Arlen Specter changed his vote and went with Obamacare. So we have a numbers game in place as well. I want to get back to Mitch McConnell because you look at his role throughout and you t- you kind of laid this out, but how do you think history will look at Mitch McConnell? As you mentioned, he delays the trial, then complains that it, the trial shouldn't be happening because the president's out of office when he was the one that prevented the trial from going on. Then he votes to acquit and gives about as scathing a speech I've heard Mitch McConnell give on the Senate floor saying how, yes, Trump did it. Somebody should look into this and he's not he, he there are plenty of ways he can be found guilty and I also kind of keep in mind, you know, he talks about you shouldn't, this shouldn't be happening with him out of office. Mitch McConnell has a tendency to frame the rules as this suits him, vis-a-vis the Supreme Court, as we've seen that. So how does, how do you think history is going to look at his role in this, his unique role, kind of trying to play both sides? Well, I think what happens is there's a, a bigger story and then there's another piece of the story. So the biggest story is that Donald Trump was not convicted. And the biggest story also is that while 57 senators voted to convict him of impeachment, he was still uh, declared um, not guilty of those charges. Now, the other part that you raise, which is a good one, is that he essentially issued two sort of uh, statements in a sense, the statement of his vote which was to not convict Donald Trump, and then his speech on the Senate floor, which was scathing. Mitch McConnell is trying to have it both ways. He can refer in the future to the fact that 
look at what I said. And he can play that video of the the really uh, critical comments that he made about Donald Trump. And he thinks that that will exonerate him from overlooking all of the deeds that um, uh, Donald Trump did. At the same time, if you read the record, you see how he voted. And if you see the record, you see how he delayed the trial. So politicians are often playing this game of trying to hide behind different facets of a political situation. I remember in uh, the election with John Kerry in 2004, there was a political ad made about some political issue, and I'm sorry, I don't recall the exact issue. But the ad said, first he voted for the bill, then he voted against the bill, then he voted for the bill, and then he voted against the bill to show that he was all over the place. Well, the issue was he was voting in different points in the process that had to do with amendments and floor votes and things like that. But ultimately, when we look at Mitch McConnell, Mitch McConnell is the sort of the centerpiece of a, a politician who is basically sort of being incredulous. He doesn't want to lose his leadership role in the Senate in terms of the Senate minority leader. He wants to get the majority in the Senate in 2022 to become Republican so that he would triumphantly return as the Senate majority leader. However, if he was not a Trump supporter, he's afraid, and that's where the word feared comes in again, he's afraid that his own caucus wouldn't place him in charge of the Republican Party in the Senate. So I think fear is a very, very big motivator. And not only McConnell, but a lot of the other senators who were afraid of being primary going forward and thought it was uh, a lesser of two evils for their political career, not necessarily for America, but for their political career to vote not to convict Donald Trump. So how do you see this whole second impeachment how will it fit into the frame of history? It is the most bipartisan vote, even though they didn't hit the 67. The only president to be impeached twice. You know, the trial takes place after he's, after President Trump had left office. There's a lot of things that make this a very unique situation. How do you think overall this will fit into the, you know, kind of the, the puzzle of history? Well, I think it depends on how long you're looking in terms of a historical period. Next five years or so, I think, is different than the next hundred years. So if you take a look, we heard repeatedly during this whole incident about the storming of the Capitol in 1812, okay? The first time the Capitol was stormed by the British and how there was uh, great damage done to the integrity of our country. This stain of the insurrection of January 6th is not going to go away. It's the second time that's happened, and it was so evident because it was filmed with everyone's cell phones and TV cameras, and there's a permanent record of it, even if there wasn't an impeachment trial. That record is not going to go away. The idea, though, is that we also have the more recent record of how people voted, what the testimony that was given at the, the trial was all about. And as we go day by day, we're also learning new things. Uh, for example, we saw the video of 
Senator Romney being turned around by Eugene Goodman in the hallway to save his life, basically, or the Mike Pence escape through the back stairs on uh, closed circuit television. We didn't see that initially. And more and more information is coming out, such as the bodyguards for Roger Stone were Proud Boys, and they were also seen at the Capitol insurrection. So this was not unrelated to sort of the central Trump sort of milieu that was playing out. But I think we have to also recognize is that just this week, we've now seen there's been a call for a 9-11 style commission to investigate what happened. Okay, and I think there's going to be some reluctance, particularly from conservatives and or Republicans about moving forward with that type of commission, because it's going to unravel many, many more instances of inappropriate behavior by political operatives and individuals. But at the same time, we have to recognize that when Benghazi happened and Hillary Clinton was the secretary of state, it ends up that they did six congressional investigations, six different ones, to sort of argue that they needed to get down to the bottom of what happened and what could be done to prevent something like the storming of a uh, U.S. government facility in Libya. This was the United States Capitol. The question is, are the forces that are really concerned about the insurrection going to just let it go after this impeachment process? I doubt it. I also doubt that there will be uh, a lack of material unearthed by journalists or political scientists or historians. There's going to be tons of books written about this subject. And I don't have a way of imagining how it's going to not provide an additional stain on Donald Trump and for many of the people that were supporters of him at that vote on January 6th to certify the election. I think we also are going to see more about the discussion about people like Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz going into the law meetings with the lawyers defending Trump while the trial is on. They're, they're jurors, and at the same time, they're dealing with the defense in a private session. And you also have to wonder how it's going to pan out in history with regards to some of these same people and also uh, Hawley from uh, the Midwest about how appropriate was it that they should even be able to be on the jury in the Senate trial of Donald Trump when they were inciting a lot of this activity as well. So there's a lot of open questions that history is going to try to answer. There was the buzz on Saturday when it looked like the trial was going to come to an end, and then all of a sudden there was a decision about witnesses, and then it seemed like Democrats backed away from that. Was that as big a deal as cable news made it out to be? Did the Democrats outthink themselves, or when it all said and done, they got the Republican congresswoman's uh, statement into the record, and, and that effectively was what they wanted? Well, it's interesting you asked that question because I was in my car on Saturday at around noon and I get a phone call uh, asking to do an interview about this very same situation. And I did the interview and I said exactly what you said. They were trying to get uh, the testimony of Representative Butler about the conversation that she knew about 
by speaking with uh, Kevin McCarthy, the Senate, excuse me, the House Minority Leader, and Donald Trump. And she documented the whole thing. And everyone sort of had known about it before, but it looked like the Senate trial was not going to have witnesses. And I think that pressure came to bear about having witnesses, and this was an obvious piece of information. So what we saw was the House managers and the senators doing a quick two-step and deciding that the defense attorneys would accept the testimony of Butler uh, to be in the record, but she wouldn't have to testify. So it would solve the problem for the defense team of not having to have the public embarrassment of her speaking in front of the Senate. It solved the problem for the Democrats of not having to not only have her perhaps cross-examined, but also it stopped some of the moves that were being talked about, for example, bringing Nancy Pelosi in as the as another witness or a piece of information that a person who could testify. And likewise, we have to remember, you know, there was a good possibility that a lot of Democrats would have liked to have had Mike Pence testify. After all, Mike Pence knew everything that happened. He was in communication before January 6th with the president and resisted trying to upset the Electoral College count. He was in the Senate where people were charging in and wanting to kill him. And the question was, what would Mike Pence say? Would he have been a hostile witness? Probably, but he would have probably portrayed himself himself as someone who was just an observer and didn't have much else to add because Mike Pence wants to run for president in 2024 and he doesn't want to alienate uh, Trump's base against him. So that opening up witnesses would have opened up a can of worms for both the impeachment managers and for the defense. And I think they took the short way out because they realized that they probably were not going to get 67 votes. So there was not necessarily a point to it. And they could bring these things up at later sort of inquiries, such as a 9-11 style commission. And my final question, the Democrats have their issues, but put that aside for now, because I think kind of front and center in the political universe right now is the Republican Party and we talked about seven Republicans voting to convict. You see the a lot of these state GOP parties censuring me- their own members for daring to say that Donald Trump was guilty. Where does the Republican Party go from here? Does the establishment wing wrestle control back? Or do you see the, the Trump wing, which has obviously been in power and been ascendant, uh, continue to to take over? Well, an excellent question. And I would break up the question into a couple of parts. Number one, we have the National Political Party and the the hopes and dreams of the Republican Party to be able to regain the White House in the future. And I think their hopes, at least in the near term, are somewhat dim because Donald Trump, in a sense, stained the cloth of, uh, of the American political landscape. And many of the people that are thinking about running were part of that process. We also have to recognize that the people that were censured by state parties, one notable example was the state of Louisiana. The state of Louisiana uh, did censure 
their their senator. And what's really fascinating is that in earlier years, when they had a candidate, David Duke, who was the the grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan running for a Senate seat, they did not stand in his way, did not censure him. They just did not endorse him. Okay. Okay. We look at other states like Arizona today. They issued a release that says that we believe in diversity of opinions and thus we're okay with one senator voting one way and one senator voting another. The place that we're seeing a lot of conversation is about the potential candidacy of Laura Trump running for the birth seat in North Carolina. And the North Carolina Republican Party censured uh, Richard Burr over his vote, but sort of does it in a uh, feeble way by saying it's just about this one vote. It's not about the senator in general. So what we're going to see, I think, is a lot of activity at the state level in particular. The Republican Party has for a long time had a problem trying to achieve national prominence in presidential elections, even though they've won. They won with George Bush and uh, Herbert Walker Bush and George W. Bush, and they won with Donald Trump. But the numbers are not going in their way in terms of the demographics. So what happens is they're much more capable of winning state Senate and state House races where they can pass legislation with a very conservative bent. So I think we have to really think about the Republican Party as not just one party, but 50 state parties and then a national party that also has its own divisions. Right now, I'm not so optimistic that 2024 is going to bring good things for Donald Trump. Um, I think that if he tries to run, he's going to have his his group of people. But I think he also has to recognize that only about 25 or 30 percent of the American electorate is Republican. A lot of them are independents and a lot of them are Democrats. So while a much more right wing sort of insurrectionist type candidacy might be appealing in a primary in a general election, it may not be so successful. And I think that's what the Republican Party has to consider as it moves forward. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In-Depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.